Let's open our Bibles again to Romans, the first chapter, the first chapter of the book of Romans. You will recall that last time we introduced the epistle to the Romans, and that I said to you there were several reasons that I wanted to expound this book, and again, we're going to take our time. We'll be here a long, long while. And uh, one of the reasons that I mentioned last time was because there has never been Reformation or genuine revival that has come upon the church, to my knowledge, in which the book of Romans has not played a part and most often has been at the center of it, as it was during the Protestant Reformation. And surely we need Reformation and we need spiritual renewal in the church in our day. And so I would ask that you pray that the Lord would bless it that way here and from here throughout the world, if the Lord would be so pleased to use us, we would be so, so very grateful. The book of Romans is really the key to understanding the whole Bible. If you understand Romans, then you understand the whole flow of redemptive history. You understand what it teaches about salvation. And so with that in mind, we come now to the first seven verses of the first chapter of Romans. We will not be able to exhaust these seven verses. We'll be in these seven verses for about three weeks, I think, uh, or the next couple of times after this. Let's pray briefly before reading. Our Father and our God, we ask in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, that you will now bless that this word given by divine inspiration will be, be used of you to show us more deeply that we idolaters by nature are in need of a Savior and that that Savior is Christ. Deepen our understanding of your word, for it is through the exposition of your word that you grow your people and establish us more deeply in the faith. Indeed, you have said in your word that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And so, Father, just as Paul the Apostle, who said that, wrote this book and was a preacher of this gospel, we pray that this gospel preached by him, preached here tonight, would be used of you to grow us in grace and to lead us on to glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through verse 7. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been privileged through my years as a Christian to read a great deal. And I suppose there's rarely a time that you'll find me that I don't have a book at least somewhere close. Um, Sometimes if I go to the grocery store to pick something up, I'll have a book just in the event I get stuck in the line and get a few minutes to read a few pages. So I've read through the years, and it's been a great privilege to read some of the the great expositors and the great theologians, and I will do that until the Lord takes me home, if he gives me the sight of eyes to do so. 
I was refreshing my memory the other day about uh, a minister whose name was J.K. Popham. I've read him since my youth. J.K. Popham was what is called a strict Baptist in England, or was, he's in heaven now, and uh, pastored for over 50 years in Galilee Chapel in uh, Liverpool, or near, near there as I recall. Uh, as he preached for over 50 years, I received a great deal of encouragement to think that soon I will have preached here 25, and maybe the Lord will help me to preach 25 more. But uh, beyond that, as I was reading through Popham, I was really, really moved into the depths of my soul by remembering that as he was near death, and he lived, I think, into his 90s, as he was near death, he exclaimed, happy. Oh, I cannot express how happy I am. My black, black sins are all washed away in the precious blood of Christ. Oh, how I love him. And knowing how he looked from portraits, I could imagine this great old preacher of the gospel delighting in this gospel that he had preached for over 50 years to one congregation and thinking about this man and how in the depths of his soul as he looked to the next world, just really a few days before his death, what filled his heart was the loveliness of Christ, the beauty of his person, the beauty of his work, the wonder of salvation, the fact that his black, black sins had been pardoned and forgiven. Now, every Christian can say that, but I really do think that saints who have long walked with the Lord and been in the depths of his word can say that better than I can and maybe better than most of us here. We grow in this. We grow in the depths of our understanding of the greatness of God's salvation. And as we work through the book of Romans, I don't think that most of us will turn maybe to age 90 as we maybe come to the end of Romans, but uh, we will be aging together and growing. I hope that as we do so, what will happen is that there will be within our souls something of what, what this pastor know, knew and felt as he looked toward eternity. My black, black sins, they are pardoned, they're forgiven. Oh, how I love him, this great Savior who has done this thing for me. And so as we unpack this gospel in this text and all of Romans, something of J.K. Popham's spirit should be ours. As we work our way through, do not only be gripped by the logic of what Paul has to say. Now, do be gripped by the logic of what Paul has to say. This is the most theological book of the New Testament. It is filled with profound reasoning. He argues from one doctrine to the next in a seamless manner. It's a marvelous thing to work through the logic of Paul's mind, to enter into his head, to see how, how he thought. But it's logic on fire, people of God. Uh, that's what we find in this book of Romans. And as we work our way through it, not only get involved in understanding its truth on an intellectual level, which is essential and which you must, but also, will you be moved by the wonder of the grace? Will you be moved once again by the depth of His love? Will you be moved to the depths of your souls by the saving mercy of God in Christ? May, may that be your, your goal as you work with your pastor through this book of Romans. And that's exactly what we find with Paul, as a matter of fact, in chapter 11, in verses 33 and following, after he's worked his way through justification and sanctification and the sovereignty of God and His grace, the Apostle Paul cannot contain, and he breaks out in doxology in Romans 11:33, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the Apostle Paul. He simply cannot hold it in. He has to break out in doxology as he considers these wonderful truths that you and I will be studying together in the book of Romans. That's what gripped Paul. That is what must grip us as Christians. Now, as we come to these first verses, let's begin by seeing together Paul's slavery. Paul's slavery. We're looking here at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, his slavery. His self-designation here is Paul, a bondservant, or a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. This word, doulos, that is translated here, a servant or bond servant, uh, can also be translated slave. Now, I think that the translation Paul, a servant, is just too weak. Now, I think it does get to something that the Apostle Paul is after. Paul probably is seeing himself in the train of Abraham and Moses and even of our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, all of whom were servants of God. But the idea here is one of total and absolute submission. That's what he wants you to see from the start. And so this word doulos, I think, is weakly translated if we simply say servant or bondservant. But we really should translate it, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, when we think of slavery, we tend to think of something that's involuntary. Paul means the opposite here. He is a willing slave because his will has, by effectual grace, been made willing to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is a slave, totally submissive, a kind of slave that is not contrary to what it means to be a son. Uh, Adoption, as he will unpack in the eighth chapter for us, not contrary to being an adopted son or a daughter of God, but it was a slavery to Jesus Christ. Why does the Apostle Paul use this term doulos, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ? What does he want you and me to see right from the start? What he wants us to see is him. That's the point. He's directing the attention away from him even when he gives his self-designation as a slave. He is saying, I'm a slave, but I'm a slave to him. I am a follower of him. I am a disciple of him. I am a servant of him. I am totally submissive to him. That's the person who is writing to you. Look away from me and look to the one who has given us this great gospel of sovereign, free grace. He wants you to see that his entire life revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a slave, a bondservant, a bondslave of Jesus Christ. Paul is totally captivated by the glory of Christ. Now, I wonder if that's you and that's me. You hear about Christ. I wonder if when we go through these texts, if sometimes your mind wanders, if sometimes we're no longer captivated by the glory of the gospel because we've heard it so often, our ears are somehow deafened to the sound of the gospel. But my friend, we should glory in this gospel. We should, we should glory in the wonder of this grace. And we should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I understand what you're saying when you call yourself a slave because I'm one too. A willing slave. That is to say, the entire universe revolves around Jesus Christ, and my life revolves around Him too. What you reveal, I believe. What you say to me, I'm going to do. What you command, I will follow. 
I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. That's where my heart is. That's my desire by your grace. And so Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave of Christ Jesus, totally captivated by Christ, concerned to preach, not himself, but concerned to preach Christ and Him crucified. Now let me say a word of pastoral counsel at this point. As your pastor, and I live there too, I see the frenzied lives that we live. I see the counseling needs that we have. And I sometimes see the perceived counseling needs that we sometimes have, that we develop in our lives, sometimes as a result of this frenzy. Now I wonder if much of this can be resolved right here and now. Uh, By simply captivation by Christ. I wonder sometimes if all of the problems that we think we live with, and maybe even do live with, I wonder if those things can be put into a proper perspective just by recognizing that we're captivated by Christ. What utter devotion our heart should have to Christ, our slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that I'm not focused on me, I'm not focused on my life, but I'm focused on Him and on His glory and His wonder. Will you give some thought to that? That maybe some of the problems that I have in life, some of the deep psychological confusion that perhaps I have in my mind, could be utterly resolved if I would get out of myself and into Christ, if I would recognize myself to be a slave to Him. How was it that Paul could live such a busy, full, may I add, a dangerous life? as he did. And yet when we read his epistles, we never find him focused upon himself. We never find him saying, I have to go to my therapist. We never find the Apostle Paul focused upon his problems. Oh, he talks about them, but he talks about them in such a Christ-centered way, doesn't he? He doesn't deny the difficulties of life, but it's right here that I think we find the answer. The Apostle Paul's mind, his heart, his affections were focused on Christ. He was a slave. He's not concerned with his rights because slaves don't have rights. He's concerned with Christ and service to him. Now, surely Paul had a call that we do not have. He was an apostle. But should this not characterize all of us us who are in Jesus Christ and in union with him? So he calls himself a slave, and as a slave, he is called as an apostle. Look again at verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel. So he is called. Now, this word call that is used by the apostle Paul here means effectual calling. It means a calling that comes from the sovereignty of God that can't be escaped. It's something that's going to happen because the call extends from our Heavenly Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Paul, always this word means effectual. Now, there are places in the Bible where call means something general. Now, you know the difference between the general call and the effectual call as the gospel is preached. The general call goes out to everyone. The effectual call goes right to God's elect and draws them out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. The general call is like the flash of lightning in the sky. The effectual call is like the lightning that strikes its target. Well, the Apostle Paul always uses this term in that way. I just can't think of an instance in which he means general call. Paul was effectually called by Christ. You remember the first chapter of Galatians, how he says that he was set apart from his mother's womb 
and he was called by the grace of God in Galatians 1.15. So he was called, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road by that effectual call. But here in this passage, he also emphasizes that his call was to an office, an office in the church, a position in the church. And what is that office? Well, it's the office of apostle. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now let's think a moment about what that means, to be called an apostle. The word apostle simply is a word that means messenger. And it's used with a certain elasticity in the New Testament. That is to say, not everywhere that you find the word does it mean precisely the same thing. We tend to think of the twelve apostles and the apostolate, and that's what it means here. But there are others who are simply emissaries for the gospel, such as Barnabas, who was not one of the twelve, or who was not Paul, and also is called an apostle. So we can use that term, and the New Testament does, in a variety of ways. When used of Paul, he means that he has the same authority as do the twelve, that that office of apostle belongs to him just as it does to them. He is called, and that is essential to apostleship. What was an apostle anyway? An apostle is one who was called to this office, who was qualified by his being an eyewitness of the risen Christ, and that was Paul. His office was confirmed by miraculous signs, and that's true of Paul. And he is an authoritative guide to the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? So Paul then is part of the apostolate. We talk about one holy Catholic and apostolic church when we talk about the apostolicity of the church. We mean what Paul says in Ephesians, that we are founded upon, the church is founded upon, the apostles and the prophets, the prophets and the apostles. Now, the Apostle Paul has a very special calling as apostle, as an apostle, not exclusively, but primarily to the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul was used to establish the authoritative doctrine and life of the church. Now, I'm hoping after Christmas on Sunday mornings to go to 1 and 2 Timothy. The reason I want to go to 1 and 2 Timothy is because it's all about passing down the truth from generation to generation. The apostles are foundational. Now, when you have a foundation, you don't continue to build up to the roof, do you? When the foundation is laid, it's laid. The apostolate is over. There are no more apostles, not in this sense, in the church. But we are built on the truth that they preached and the truth that they proclaimed. And in First and Second Timothy, he's teaching Timothy, look, there's going to be a time in which I'm not here as an authoritative guide. You take this truth and you pass it on to other faithful men who in turn can pass it on to other faithful men and proclaim it to the church. So the Apostle Paul is called to this very special office as an authoritative guide to the church, a foundational office, and he was used to establish the doctrine and the teaching upon which Christianity is built. And that's why it's so distressing when we find churches that are unconcerned with this doctrine because it's apostolic, it's foundational. And if we get away from it, then we no longer will be, over time, the church that we are called to be. 
Now, there's no need of an apostle today because the New Testament canon is closed. That is to say, the Bible is complete. Where we find apostolic doctrine is by studying that word as we are doing it tonight. So, that's Paul's self-designation. He speaks of his slavery, his calling to apostleship. But now let's secondly look at Paul's separation, his separation. Again, look at verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, separated or set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was sovereignly separated by salvation, but Paul was also sovereignly separated, that is, set apart for this unique ministry of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this glorious gospel. So to what was Paul set apart? He answers the question, he was set apart to the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now that word gospel as most of you know, means good news, euangelion, it means good news. And it is described for us here not simply as gospel, but the gospel of God, and that is a very important designation. It's important to designate this the gospel of God, not only because it is the gospel that can come only from God, but because there were many gospels in Paul's day just as there are many gospels or false gospels in ours. It was very important to designate this the gospel of God. There were many gospels in the New Testament era, often that were associated with the emperor cult. For example, when the emperor announced that he had an heir, when the announcement went forth in the Roman world, it was a euangelion. It was good news. It was gospel. When there was an emperor uh, who was about to accede to the throne, that accession to the throne went forth as a euangelion, good news, in the day of the Apostle Paul. And so undoubtedly when Paul the Apostle and the other New Testament writers use this term, they want to designate their gospel as a gospel of God in order to distinguish it from the many gospels, false gospels, or gospels otherwise that would have been proclaimed in the New Testament era. But also the Apostle Paul, as he uses this term gospel of God, is drawing upon rich Old Testament background, especially from the book of Isaiah. On your own, read Isaiah 40 verse 9, Isaiah 41 verse 27, 52-7, 60 verse 6, 61 verse 1. Just look up this word and follow it out, good news in the Old Testament. And there you will find that, especially in the prophet Isaiah, you find this word euangelion. Remember, the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, and the Greek translation would have been the Bible that the Apostle Paul and the Apostles would have used as their version, just as you carry an ESV or whatever your version may be. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the good news. That's the word. It's euangelion. Jesus brings this saving rule to us. This word in the Old Testament that means the inbreaking of God's saving rule is brought by Jesus into the world. This saving announcement of his gospel. You will remember in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the prelude to Jesus' announcement of the good news 
or God's gospel. Now, it's important then to understand why he designates gospel as gospel of God to distinguish it from false gospels, but also so that you understand what the prophets have been proclaiming is what I am now proclaiming to you. This gospel, the inbreaking of God's saving rule into the world. Now, let's also see that the message of Christianity is news. Euangelion means good news. But it's important that you remember that the gospel that is preached is news. It's extremely important. Why is it important? Well, my friend, it's important for you to remember that the gospel is news because the gospel is not simply man's idea. The gospel is not ideas. It brings in its train ideas. The gospel is not philosophy. It brings in its train philosophy. The gospel is not psychology. It affects our psychology. The gospel is fundamentally news. It is an announcement of something that took place. It is an announcement of something that happened. I have news, we say to someone. What do we mean by that? Well, I have news of a birth. I have news of a change of situation. I have news about a war in another country. I have news about the upcoming election. I have news about an inheritance. When we use the word news, we mean something has happened, something has taken place. And that's why it's important that Paul uses this term gospel, which means good news. It's very important. For when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming that something took place in history. The gospel is not, first of all, about how I feel about it. The gospel is about God doing something for me that happened in history. And one of the important points that J. Russell Machen makes in Christianity and Liberalism is that liberalism simply jettisons this point, and with it, Christianity. If you set aside this point, you set aside with it Christianity. And Machen rightly argued, if religion be made independent of history, there is no such thing as gospel. If you set this aside, there's no good news. God came into our desperate situation. The second person of the, of the Trinity assumed human nature, atoned for our sins on the cross, rose from the dead. This is euangelion. It is good news. The gospel is an account. It's something that happened. It is the best of news. So let's not forget that. Because often we tend to be very confused on this point and to think about the gospel in all kinds of ways. But the gospel is fundamentally good news, and what always must be at the heart of our proclamation is what God has done for us in time and space and in history. Well, that leads us then to this point, Paul's gospel. This is the third thing we see here, Paul's gospel. In the first part of verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, let's think about this gospel, this good news. And the first thing that we want to see about Paul's gospel is that it was a promised gospel. You see it here, right? Verse 2. Uh, you might want to look at the text. That's where you find it. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He promised it beforehand through his prophets. Now, first of all, this means that the only way that this could happen, the only way that prophets could announce beforehand what would take place 
is if God planned it from all eternity. How could it be possible for the prophets to announce something with certainty if God hadn't revealed to them that that was his purpose and his plan? Behind this whole idea of the prophets proclaiming is the sovereignty of God over all things. If God had not purposed it, they would have had nothing to announce. They could not have known in advance that this was the gospel. And so God's decree, predestination, election, these things are essential in Paul's writings. They pervade Paul's writings. They are, they are in one way or another on every page of his epistle, I am convinced. Herman Hooksema once uh, had a fellow come up to him and says, you preach too much about election and predestination. He said, all right, let's take the Bible. He said, we'll put it like this and let it fall open. Anywhere he opened it, he could show him on the page where it was found. It's everywhere present. And it is certainly present in the writings of the Apostle Paul. For Christians to be afraid of words like predestination, election, the sovereignty of God, this is simply an irrational fear that means we don't understand it. Don't understand what God has revealed about it. We are to understand that these things are, are the, the essential planks of assurance of faith. And later the Apostle Paul, in this very epistle, especially in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, will show how essential the sovereignty of God and predestination and election is for our assurance and joy in the gospel. And so it is something that is promised beforehand. The prophets proclaimed it beforehand because God had planned it beforehand. Now, also we notice here the prophets foretold the outworking of this plan, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the unfolding of the Holy Scriptures, which is traceable all the way back. The unfolding of this plan in the Scriptures is traceable all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the gospel of Christ, the dawn of our redemption. Now think how often Paul argues from Old Testament passages, will you? If you go to chapter 4, he argues our justification by grace through faith on the basis of Abraham. If you go to chapter 5 of the book of Romans, he argues that Christ is the last Adam over against the first Adam from the first chapters of Genesis. If we were to turn to Romans 9 through 11, we find him arguing from the Jacob narrative. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. This is what our Lord taught on the road to Emmaus. That everywhere that you turn in the Bible, it's about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about redemption. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, the Lord Jesus Christ taught the disciples in Luke 24... And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so we can see the Lord Jesus Christ walking with these disciples. And he takes them to the scriptures, undoubtedly beginning way back in Genesis, and unfolds for them all that the scriptures taught, so that in every part of the scriptures you see, Jesus said, it's all about me. Undoubtedly, he would have read or quoted the 22nd Psalm, Isaiah 53. So the Apostle Paul says, this is the gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets, but now notice, in the Holy Scriptures. 
So that the Apostle Paul believes in the oracles of God, as he will call them later on in this book. He believes in the authority of the Bible. Right here in the first two verses of the book of Romans, he grounds his preaching and proclamation to them, everything that he's going to write in the sacred scriptures, in the holy scriptures. And he speaks of this prophetic preaching of this before his preaching of this, which also speaks of one unified Bible. Now, why is it that your pastors tend, as a norm, to preach through uh, books of the Bible, to work through a large pericope, a large segment of the Bible? The reason for this, among other reasons, is because you begin to see something of the unity of the Bible when you work through large segments of the Bible like that. And if we're simply going from text to text, you're not going to see the unity of the Bible. The Apostle Paul argues for that right here in the Holy Scriptures. So it's important for you as Christians to know your New Testament. It's important that you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's important that you know the book of Acts, that you know Paul's epistles all the way through to the book of Revelation. But it's also important for you that you know your Old Testament, that you begin to understand the flow of the Old Testament, the argument of the Old Testament. And if that's difficult for you, let me suggest that one way you can do that is by being in Vespers on Wednesday nights, because 98% of the preaching that is done in Vespers on Wednesday nights is done from the Old Testament. We've done 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, now we're in Daniel 11. And I know some of you can't be there, but nonetheless, many of you could, and as we work through. Now, let me tell you, that's not easy. Uh, I would much rather turn to an epistle of the Apostle Paul as terms of where my own comfort is than preach the apocalyptic section of Daniel. But it's God's Word, and we need to know it, and we need to understand it. And if you ever, if you ever go to the Bible, and you read it, and you think that this is is boring to me. Oh, I hate that word. Parents, don't let your children use that word. (laughs) Ooh, this is boring to me. Let me tell you two stories. One was a delightful uh, conversation I had with my own son recently. I I hope he won't mind my telling you that he was reading through the book of Chronicles and reading one of the genealogies, and he wept before the Lord with joy. Why, son? Because I saw in that list of names God's covenant faithfulness to the generations. I said, you've got it. You've got it. Another story. John Murray, the great professor of systematic theology, fine biblical scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary, he made the statement when talking about this theme, about some boring parts, difficult parts of the Bible, parts that maybe you want to just kind of skip over, difficult to read the Old Testament and so forth. The Bible scholars, let me say the Bible students' work may sometimes be as dry as dust, but then it's gold dust. That's how you have to think about it. So that it's not in any one thing that you read, any one sermon that you hear preached, that you will find, oh, this is a new insight. But the cumulative effect of studying the Word of God and knowing the Holy Scriptures is going to help you to see that you're just gathering in your, in your pouch Rich, rich gold dust. I think many ministers have lost confidence in the Bible. I love when the Apostle Paul speaks of the Holy Scriptures in this passage. 
And I think that many ministers have lost confidence in the Bible. Many ministers say, I believe the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and they will read a text and never expound the text. Why? Because we've lost confidence in the book. Now notice this, that this gospel that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures is the gospel, the beginning of verse 3, concerning his son. Let's say a little about this. The sonship of Jesus in Paul the Apostle and in the New Testament always means the deity of Christ. It always points to the deity of Christ. That is to say, Jesus Christ is God. We're talking about Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Now, Paul did not use the term Trinity, but everything that the church has meant by Trinity is found in the writings of the Apostle Paul and in the Bible as a whole. He is ascribing to Jesus Christ deity when he speaks of his Son here in this verse. In the ninth chapter of this book of Romans... And in verse 5, not using the term Son, but nonetheless an ascription of deity to the Son, he says in Romans 9, 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Bless forever. Amen. So let me be plain, because sometimes I find that professing Christians are not clear on this. Jesus Christ, according to Paul the Apostle and all of the New Testament, is God. And when the Sonship of Christ is referenced in the New Testament, it is a reference to His deity. It is the Son who assumed human nature. It is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who took our poverty that we might become rich, who was born under the law and assumed the burden of our guilt. It was the Son of God upon whom the wrath of God was poured in our place. It was the one in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit who came in order that we might be redeemed. The gospel is the gospel of God, but that gospel that comes from God is the gospel about His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's that gospel that Paul is going to unpack for us all through the book of Romans and even apply to how we live with one another in the church at the end of the book. So we'll have to see more of this uh, and how this is unpacked next time. But as we close, let me ask you this. Do you see this gospel, this glorious gospel, to be the best news that the world has ever heard? Are you thrilled with this news? Are you overwhelmed with the wonder and the glory of the truth and reality that the Son of God has come into the world to be your Savior? Here is the gospel of God that the Father chose His people and determined to send His Son, that the Son willingly came, assumed human nature, that He died on a cross and rose from the dead, that the Holy Spirit takes this glorious gospel, this good news, and applies it savingly to the heart, that divine justice has been met, that condemnation is removed, that guilt is forgiven, that the sinner is accepted, that righteousness is imputed. Oh, my people, I ask you, will you not remember this gospel and renew your genuine excitement about this gospel of God as we work our way slowly through the book of Romans? And will you pray that the Lord will use it to send 
reformation, renewal, and revival. Will you? Amen.